your Bible. I encourage you to bring your Bible. If you don't have one, there's one provided for you in the pew. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 29. It's on page 28 of the Pew Bible. I don't know if you have heard of uh, Pastor Louis Giglio. He's a very interesting and, and uh, insightful uh, preacher. And he said this. He said, I think all music, not just Christian music, but all music, is worship music. Because every song is amplifying the value of something. There's a trail of our time, our affections, our allegiance, our devotion, and our money. That trail leads to a throne. And whatever's on that throne is what we worship. We're all doing a great job of it because God has created us to be worshipers. The problem that a lot of us have is we have really bad gods. The crux of biblical idolatry is not a thing, an object. What Giglio points out is it's something that captures our heart. It's something that our heart beats after. It's something that consumes your time, your affections, your thoughts, your actions. In other words, it's something that you go to to get your value from. Something that you go so often to that literally you beat a well-worn trail to that thing. And that trail leads to a throne upon which sits your functional God. Now many Christians proclaim to love God with all their heart and all their soul and all their might and all their strength. But really, they love something else more. All you really have to do is you have to look at where you spend your time, where your, your thought life is, what you, what you spend your energy doing, what consumes you. Follow that trail in your life and it will lead you to a throne upon which sits your functional God. This morning we're going to look at two women, Leah and Rachel, and follow the trail of their heart that leads to their functional God. Look with me at verse 20 in chapter 29 starting in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me a son also. 
and she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son. And she said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing children. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him to her, her servant Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and prevailed. So she called his name Nephtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, I am happy, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found some mandrakes in a field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to him to meet him and he said, you must come home with me. For I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my servant to my husband. So she called his name Iskar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons and she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Father God, I ask you to preach to your people. Help me to convey the meaning of this text to them and apply it to their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's obvious here that Leah and Rachel 
are engaged in a, a battle here of who can produce the most children. And as we read this carefully, we see two somewhat contradictory things going on here. First, God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham. God is fulfilling the promise way back in Genesis 12, that, that John 3.16 of the Old Testament, where God promises Abr- Abram at that time to take him to a, a land and give him the land and, and to give him the person that will be a blessing to all the world, this, this messianic promise, this seed promise of the Messiah coming out of the lineage of Abraham. And he also it there gives him the promise of being a great nation, a multiple people coming out of him. And here we see the birth of this nation. Eleven of the twelve tribes of Israel are born. Yet at the same time that promise is being fulfilled, something contradictory is going on. It's being done through incredibly sinful circumstances. So God's promise is coming about through incredibly sinful circumstances. Both women are in a personal race for fulfillment. They're, they're, the, the children in this text are, are secondary. Did you get that feeling? It's really a secondary thing going on here. They're being used as a means to an end. They're, they're literally beat, using the birth of children to beat a path to their functional idol in each of their hearts. And their idols come to the surface through the names of the children. We don't think about names too much today. Some people do, but most people don't think about the names they're giving to their children. But in biblical times, it was, it was highly important, very important. You see it way back with uh, Jacob being born, grabbing onto the heel, so they name him Jacob, heel grabber. You see it with his brother Esau, who was born ahead of him. He came out, and he was apparently pretty red and hairy. And so they name him Esau, meaning red. And even Isaac. He's named for the laughter, either from the, the delightful laughter of his father Abraham when, when God was telling him about the birth, or maybe even the laughter of unbelief of his wife Sarah when she heard. We're not sure. But here we have 11 names explained. And through these names, we begin to see Leah and Rachel's heart. We begin to see what they're really fighting for, what they really value, what's really important to them. And for Leah, what's really important to her is love, the love of her husband, right? That's what's driving her. You get the impression from Scripture that Leah was always playing second fiddle to her sister, Rachel, in physical beauty, we learn back a little earlier on in chapter 29 and verse 17 that, that Leah's eyes were weak, but that Rachel's form was beautiful. We don't know exactly what weak eyes meant. It's an Hebrew idiom. But definitely from, from how it, it, we see it in the rest of Scripture, we, we, we get the impression that Rachel was really drop-dead gorgeous and Leah was just kind of average. We see it in the priority, too, that she was paying second fiddle. Leah was being passed over by, by Jacob's love for Rachel, her, 
her younger sister. And in that culture, that, that just didn't happen. You didn't give the younger before the elder. But Jacob was focused on the younger. Passing over Leah, imagine how much that hurt. And then even in marriage, Leah is loved less. Here in verse 31, it says, The Lord, um, the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Now, we have to understand that that is the biblical um, hate by comparison. You know, Jesus used this same language himself to, to show the disparity between what was loved and what was, 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 was loved less. He said, by comparison to loving me, you have to, to, be, to be fit to be called my disciple, you have to hate your parents. He wasn't saying hate your parents. He was saying, by comparison to how much you love me and your devotion to me, it should look like that. There's the gap that we see here between Jacob's love for Rachel and his affection, maybe, for Leah. We can imagine, we're not told, but we can imagine that Jacob was always asking for Rachel, where Rachel was first when he got home. Or perhaps he talked about Rachel more. Or he spent time with Rachel and smiling at Rachel and turning towards her more in the relationship. Inviting Rachel to sit next to him while not inviting Leah. Giving her more extravagant gifts. Whatever it was, he was absolutely showing that he preferred and loved Rachel more. And we can just imagine how this ate at Leah and how it crushed her. I think we can all somewhat imagine that. We've all, at some point in our life, wanted the attention of someone and it wasn't given to us. It was given to another. And, and how it hurt. You know how they say your heart aches? A heartache? Have you ever had actually that feeling of your heart aching at those moments? I'm sure that's how she felt. So her heart goes out to Leah. And you know what? So did God's. God's heart broke towards Leah. And our tender-hearted God looked at the situation and mercifully opened her womb. But what God meant for good, Leah uses for her own devices. She uses it to get what is ultimately what she is looking for ultimately to give her meaning and purpose and value and that is her husband's love. That was her idol. That was her functional God. If Jacob will just love me, I will be fulfilled. I will be complete. I will be satisfied. She wanted to be loved and cherished and valued by Jacob. And this desire comes out in the first three names she names her sons. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Now my husband will love me. Simeon or Reuben. Simeon, the Lord has seen that I am hated. And Levi, now my husband, now, finally, third child, my husband will be attached to me and not Rachel. The love of her husband is what gave Leah value. 
what got her up in the morning, what consumed her thought life, what consumed her energy. It consumed how she acted, what she said. Her husband's love was on the sitting on the throne of her heart. In an article in the Gospel Coalition website, it offers this potent definition of sin. It says, sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things ultimate things. Sin is building your life in meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Concludes by saying, wherever we build our life, Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is ultimately idolatry. And having the love of your spouse is a good thing. God created it that way. But it's not an ultimate thing. It's not the ultimate thing. And that's what Leah was doing. She was building her life on the love of her husband. If you build your life on that, if that is what gets you up in the morning, if that is what is ultimate, then it is the sin of idolatry, even though it's a good thing. And that's what Leah had done. So much so that her children, another good thing, were just pawns that were being sacrificed to her idol of the love of her husband. One after the other. You see, if there's anything sitting on the throne of your heart besides God, anything sitting on that throne, if you're looking for anything else to give you worth and value, whether it's prestige or reputation, or pleasure, or power, or security, or comfort, or the love of your spouse. If you're looking for anything else to to bear the weight of that, it won't. It won't give you the value. You're asking that, whatever it is, to give you something It can never give you. In order to recover the endangered short-tailed albatross population on the Izu Island chain in Japan, the Yamashina Institute has implemented something called Operation Decoy. 100 decoys were placed on the islands in order to attract the endangered species and encourage them to breed. An interesting dilemma occurred, though. An albatross that they had named Deco, for more than two years, tried to woo one of the decoys by building fancy nests for it, fighting off rivals. That bird spent day after day, month after month, standing faithfully by that wooden decoy's side. Japanese researchers commenting on the albatross's infatuation to the wooden decoy said, it seems that this bird has no desire to date real birds. 
although that is humorous, if we could step back and, and see what we do, it would look just as ridiculous. We go after other things than Christ and expect them, demand of that wooden decoy to give us something that it can never give. We expect our money to bring us deep, abiding, long-lasting satisfaction. It's a wooden decoy. We expect our relationships, whatever they may be, to fill that void in our heart to give us value and meaning. And we demand that of our relationships. But it's a wooden decoy. We build our fancy nests called retirement and expect it to give us that continual high that we feel when we go on vacation. That final exhale that we all desire. But that high wears off. See, idolatry is basically trying to woo a wooden decoy. Demanding of an inanimate object or an ideology something that it can never, ever give you. Jesus said to me, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I think what Jesus was, was talking about there is I give the ultimate value that you are all seeking. And Jesus showed his ability to fill that void by, by coming close to us, by, by coming from heaven to earth to, to wrap himself in humanity, to humble himself, Philippians 2 says, to humble himself. He showed how much he loved us. He shows his love for us by offering a gift. You know what he offers us? He offers us his righteousness. That's part of the gospel. He lived a a flawless life under the law. And, And part of what the gospel says is when you trust in Jesus, you're trusting not in your own good works, but his good works. He did it. You know what Jesus says in the gospel? Take my righteousness. And you know what's beautiful about the gospel? He says, and he asks another thing too. He says, your condemnation, the punishment for your sin, the eternal banishment from God's presence that, that you're headed to, if you believe in me, I'll take that for you. I'll die, and you'll live. Now, if, if that doesn't show love, I don't know what does. I, I just don't know what does. He literally laid down his life for you and me. And he says, look to me for your meaning. Look to me for your value. I will give you value. And it says over, over, and over again in the New Testament, in Romans 8 and Galatians 4, that, that we are now his children. Co-heirs with Christ. 
inheritors of everything. It's Christ who gives you the value. And he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. He says, I'm here. I'm not a wooden decoy. I'm alive. And I can love you. And I can fulfill that deep, deep desire that Leah is seeing here. And it seems as though Leah gets it in verse 35, doesn't it? She, she names Judah, I will praise the Lord. It seems like it, the light bulb goes on, doesn't it? Seems like the fourth child finally brings the rest. That her heart is turned towards the Lord. But then we continue reading, don't we? And we see that, no, no, fleeting. Idolatry doesn't die that easily. Brothers and sisters, idolatry doesn't die that easily. We see that after Rachel has two surrogate children through Bilhah, Leah re-enters the arms race. She cannot get pregnant, so she sends in her maidservant Zilpah, and she gives birth to two surrogate children, whom she names Gad and Asher. Good fortune and happy. And these names show us that she went back to her idol, isn't it? She went back to her idol. She's ahead in the race for Jacob's love once again. I'm happy. I'm fulfilled. She's still using her children to fulfill her own happiness. And surely six children will do it, right? We haven't even reached the low point of the story yet. That happens in the next section. The nadir of the story comes when Leah, Leah's son Reuben brings home some mandrakes. He's probably a, a young teenager by this point. Mandrakes were thought back then to boost fertility. So Rachel sees these and she's barren. And so she pleads for them. Please give me some of my some of your son's mandrakes. This will help me, as we will see, fulfill my functional idol. But Leah gives her some of the mandrakes, but she strikes a deal. They strike a deal. I'll give you these mandrakes, but I get Jacob for the night. Now this should make our, our faces sour. This, this should be shocking to us. Here we see not only the bitter fruit of polygamy coming out, the nasty rivalry between two blood sisters, the cheapening of, of childbearing, but here we have marital intimacy being treated like a commodity. You give me this, I'll give you Jacob. That's what the sin of idolatry does. It warps a good thing that God has given. In Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, he shows his readers the brokenness and damage caused by idolatry. He says, if you center your life and your identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through them until they resent you or have no identity left of their own. If you center your life and your identity on your work and career, you'll be driven 
to workaholism and at the very least threaten your relationship with your family. If you center your life and your identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry and jealousy. If you center your life and identity on pleasure and gratification and comfort, you will find yourself addicted to something. You'll become chained to the escape strategies of which to avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on religious morality, you will, if you're living up to the moral standards, be proud and self-righteous and cruel. And if you don't live up to the moral standards, you'll be guilty and devastated. And as we see here, if you center your life and identity on the love of your spouse or a relationship, you'll, be, you'll do almost anything to get it. Even use the precious marital bed as a bargaining chip. Well, as we see, idols don't die very easily. Two more sons were born through this trade. The name Issachar shows that she thinks God is rewarding her. Listen to this. She thinks God is rewarding her for trading on the husband. And Zebulun, here she comes back again to that idol. Now my husband will honor me. Finally. Shows us that her heart is still beating for that idol, Jacob's love. Now, Rachel's idol was not love, but Rachel's idol was a product of being loved. Rachel's idol was prestige. Prestige. Rachel was, being, was used to being the one who had all the attention. She was used to being the one that was favored. She was used to being number one in the family. After all, she was objectively more beautiful. She reveled in being the center of attention. And after Leah gave birth to the first four children, she feels as if she's losing that prestige. She's losing her position. She's losing that attention that was all given to her. Yet, interestingly, the text never says that. Jacob's attention was still focused on Rachel. But it's interesting that she begins to believe that she's going to start playing second fiddle to Rachel. That's another thing idols do for us. They, they, they skew our reason and logic. And when your idols are threatened, you know what our reaction normally is? When your idol, when my idols are threatened, the natural reaction to that is anger. Anger. You see it here in, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 30 when Rachel saw that she, Leah bore Jacob, uh, when she bore no children for Jacob, she envied her sister. And she went to Jacob and said, Give me children or I shall die. Rachel explodes at Jacob. Anger is a very easy window into your and my idols. Just ponder. What makes you angry? Why do you get angry? Why do I get angry? When is it? What is it that if you don't get it, frustrates you? Maybe it's when you're not respected the way you think you should be. 
idol of reputation. Or when the stock market dips, are you a hard person to be around? Idol of money or security. How do you react when something or someone disrupts your schedule? This describes me. Idol of comfort. Don't disrupt my comfort. Does a dent in your car or a branch falling on your home or salt getting into your boat engine make you a hard person to live with? Idol of materialism or mammon. When a promotion that you thought was yours goes to someone else, do you lash out? Rachel certainly did. Because her idol of prestige is being threatened. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, In your anger, do not sin. Anger can lead us to do terribly sinful things. And in Rachel's anger, she repeats the sin of her great-grandmother-in-law, Sarah. She offers to Jacob, Bilhah, and to produce children in her stead. And once Dan and Naphtali are born, in verse 7, she feels like she's regained her position, right? Look at the names there. Naphtali means, I have wrestled with my sister and prevailed. I am winner. I've got my prestige back. She has reclaimed her position. But it doesn't last, does it? Just like Leah, it didn't last. It doesn't last with Rachel. Leah has a couple more surrogate children and then three more by herself. And she's back to feeling second fiddle. And even after, and this this is what's amazing if you look at verses 22, 23, and 24. Even after, God is amazingly gracious and generous to her. It says there that God opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son. She said, God has taken away my reproach. This is what she's feeling. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Idols never satisfy. That's the last lesson of idolatry. They never, ever, ever satisfy Idols never are sated. It's like that little plant in Little Shop of Horrors, the play. Feed me, Seymour. You know, you give, he gives him a little bit and the plant goes, feed me, Seymour. Gives him a little bit more, feed me, Seymour. Wants more and more and more and more. That's what our idols say to us all the time. Feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. Whatever it is. It's never satisfied. Whether it's prestige or love or health or beauty or pleasure, that pursuit of what you view as having ultimate value never ends. Unless what is ultimate in your life actually has value. Let me read that again. The pursuit of what you view as having ultimate value never ends, unsatisfied, unless what is ultimate in your life actually has value. 
the German philosopher Friedrich Hegel wrote, life has value only when it has something valuable as its object. Pastor Aaron Baker writes of an experience he had when he was a child. He says, when I was growing up, whenever we went out to dinner as a family, and the possibility of ordering dessert came up, my father would always say to me, don't order the apple pie. Now, my father wasn't a cruel man, he writes. He was not trying to keep me from ordering dessert. He actually wanted to protect me from disappointment. You see, my mother makes the best apple pie in the whole world, and my father had learned from experience that no apple pie could ever compare to my mother's. What the Bible says about Jesus Christ is what Aaron Baker His father said to him, don't make anything of ultimate value in your life except Jesus Christ. Why? Because everything else will disappoint. Everything else falls short. It will always let you down. Whatever is is sitting on the, the throne of your heart and I, and I encourage you to examine your heart. Whatever is sitting there, if it's not Jesus Christ, it will let you down. It will fade. It will never be satisfied. It will never compare to the love you will receive and the value you will feel from Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word. I ask you, Spirit, to take these feeble words and change our hearts supernaturally towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.